Hello and welcome to another episode of Reformation Roundtable. My name is Joe Stout and I am pleased to bring you the audio from the fellowship night that took place with Christ Covenant Church on March 28th, 2021. During this time of confessional covenant renewal worship, we discuss the authority of parents as well as sing many, many hymns just like the one you just heard, which is called The Son of God Goes Forth to War. This was Palm Sunday, and so there was definitely a theme of victory and the coming of the King. And we want you to join us in planting this church. We're in Lewis County, Washington, in the Centralia Chehalis area, and we have seen the Lord work in mighty ways as we have sought to plant a Reformed church right here in our own community. If you'd like to join us and come alongside and be one of our founding member families, head on over to lewiscounty.church. There you'll find an events tab, you'll find a contact tab, and you'll also see all of the past discussions and fellowship nights that we've had up until this point. I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to the audio, but just know we would love to have you join us as we seek to bring the glories of the Reformation in the transforming power of the gospel to Lewis County, Washington. Okay, our meditation is Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. If you want to follow along with me, it's Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. God, let us praise you, for our confidence does not rest in our own merits, but is grounded in the person and merit of Jesus, who knows our frame, since he also came to be fully human while fully God. His blood has been spilled to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a great and wonderful thing that Jesus is now our high priest interceding for us. We can rejoice that we no longer have to continually bring sacrifices to an earthly priest or an earthly temple. Let us praise our Father for this. Let us worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And also to you. Okay, Psalm 103, 1 through 5. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Lift up your hearts. We We lift them up to the Lord. Lord, Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would uh, be with us this evening, that you would call us into worship. Lord, we pray that you would be with us and that you would bless our coming together and that you would just watch over all of us, be with those who cannot be here, Lord, and bless our time together. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.
All right, why don't you guys go ahead and stand up, and we're going to sing a good old classic from Martin Luther. A mighty fortress is our God. As I was learning the chords for this, I was thinking, man, this is a hard song to learn. And then I realized uh, who wrote the melody it was Bach. <laughs> Don't take Bach lightly, that's for sure. Okay, you'll find it probably on the, maybe on the inside of your uh, the bifold there. So. Okay, a mighty fortress is our God. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. today is it's kind of a special day we call it what Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday that's right okay so <clears throat> in scripture we're brought to uh, different portions of the Gospels on the triumphal entry right so that's why we call it Palm Sunday it talks about people laying their cloaks down and the, the palm branches and waving the palm branches as Jesus enters Jerusalem so as we look at today, Palm Sunday, 
Okay, I'm going to read a little bit from Matthew and Matthew's account of the triumphal entry. This is in Matthew 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So we uh, look at today as Palm Sunday being the beginning of Holy Week. Um, and today, a lot of times in many churches around, we have uh, decorated with palm branches or, you know, pictures of them. And we have, sometimes the kids will walk around and chant, Hosanna. And um, so we get this from Matthew 21. And the Pharisees, though, were upset about this. Okay, and this was noted in Luke's gospel, in Luke's account, at least, of, of this specifically. Um, and it wasn't because of this quote-unquote royal carpet. It wasn't because of the cloaks and the palm branches, right? But it was because of something specific that they shouted. And what is it that they were shouting? Well, verse 9, chapter 19 um, and Jesus said to them, today is something, oh, sorry, that's not right, is it? No, it is. First, it's verse 9, actually, and any other passage that I have. But the Pharisees understood what Jesus was saying, because he was coming in the name of the Lord. He was claiming to be God. He was coming to bring in the kingdom. Now... Pharisees rebuked the people for they knew that this was reserved for Israel's Savior. They knew the Old Testament. They knew that this meant that, okay, Israel's Savior was coming. And they didn't believe Jesus was the Savior. So as we think about this and think about their upset, how mad they were, how upset they were that uh, the people were claiming this and stirring everybody up. And it was this big ruckus, a big riot as Jesus was coming in Jerusalem. And there was so much stuff going on. It was getting a little out of hand. There were big crowds. It weren't just the Jews, but there were, there were also Gentiles coming together, and here they were screaming and chanting into the city, and they were like, oh, no, stop, stop. Tell them, rebuke them. Tell them to quit saying this. And then Jesus uh, quite famously says, you know, hey, if you even stop them, then the stones will cry out. Like, you, you can't stop this. This is ordained. So may we not be as the Pharisees who harden their hearts toward Jesus. May we have soft hearts of flesh as we approach our Savior. As we think about Holy Week, as we approach the pinnacle of the Christian faith coming up, as we celebrate the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Amen. So as we come into a time of confession, 
uh, what I would like to do is, uh, is bring us into a time of corporate confession, confession of sin. And as we've done, we've practiced it here, worshiping with our whole body. As Joe has mentioned before, we want to worship God with our whole body. And so when, as we approach confession, we want to go ahead and kneel, if you are able. Now, let me go ahead and read. Um, I'll read Psalm 130 before we kneel, so that we're not kneeling all that time. And that will help bring us in. Okay, so I wanted to read in Psalm 130, verses 1 through 8. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, I hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Amen. So, as we uh, do corporate confession, if you are able, go ahead and kneel, and we will confess, I will pray, and then we will do uh, response, a response to Let's confess our sins together. Actually, let's do a responsive prayer now, okay? Confess our sins together. Lord, Lord we, we come, come to you with hearts, hearts broken, broken, lives often in tatters, and, and yet you love us. We, we confess that we do not love you as we should, and that, and that we rebel against you in sin. May, may we repent, may we cry out to you for mercy and healing. Our souls long for peace that only you can give. Grant us peace and mercy, O Lord, we pray. Amen. And take a minute of silent confession. Okay. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. As we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. Let's read from... We're going to read from Micah. Micah 7, verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like you, hardening iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. People of God, hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. So as Luke was talking about, Jesus has come as a conquering king. As he rode in, in battle array, into the city of Jerusalem, he did several things almost immediately. 
one of which is he cursed the fig tree. He also went out and cleaned house on the temple. It was an act of war, and the Pharisees knew it, and that is why within a week they had him unjustly murdered. But he set the pattern for us. And so we're going to learn a new song tonight, and it is a song that was, um, it was written uh, back in 1827, and it's called The Son of God Goes Forth to War. And the awesome thing I love about this song is, is it's a song of history. There's four stanzas. Uh, each line is a stanza. The first stanza is about our king, about Jesus. The second stanza is about Stephen, the first martyr. The third stanza is about the apostles. And the fourth stanza is the church. It's all about the church triumphant. The church triumphant are those who are in heaven now, cheering us on. They're the cloud of witnesses that surround us. And we are the church militant. Militant means that we're in battle right now. And so just as Jesus, the Son of God, went forth to war, so we must as well. So we're going to sing the first verse at least two times through so we can kind of start to get the, the feel for the tune. It starts out fairly low. Uh, there's a, it starts out fairly low, and the reason why is because it gets there's quite a there's quite a vocal range on it. But um, there's I, I sent out a link uh, to the email list this morning that gives just a, a basic overview of the tune or of the uh, just the melody. And then there's another one I haven't shared with you guys yet that actually shows it being sung in four part harmony. This is a gorgeous song, uh, and it's a gorgeous battle song when it's sung in four part harmony. So um, the Stout Kids know this song, and so you guys sing it out nice and loud. The Son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. His blood-red banner streams afar, who follows in his train. Who best can drink his cup of woe, triumphant over pain? Patient bears his cross. Sings their hope they knew and mocked the cross. 
standing just for uh, as we recite a couple of uh, the confessions okay we're looking at the confession of faith the Westminster shorter catechism is where I brought these some of you may be familiar with this but it's question and answer it's all set up in a question and answer and uh, so I'll read I'll read the question you guys can all respond with answering what is the chief end of man man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? The Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. Okay, I'm going to invite Elias to come forward and read Scripture for us here. We're going to be reading Luke 19, uh, 28 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If, one, if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who are sent away... And found it, just as he just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, "Why are you untying the colt?" And they said, "The Lord has need of it." And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat. They set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Rejoice and praise God. Oh, oops, sorry, same line. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in, the, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You forgot the last part. It's okay. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. All right. How about you guys have a seat? 
So we're following a pattern of covenant renewal worship. And in covenant renewal worship, God calls us into his presence. And whenever God calls us anywhere, the first, our first thought is, we better confess our sins. We better wipe our feet before we come in the house. And so we've, we've been called into his presence. We've confessed our sin. We've confessed our common faith. And now we're being consecrated. We're being changed into a new being, that being being Christ. And that happens through the reading of the word. That happens through course singing like we've been doing. It also happens through prayer. So as we sing, great is thy faithfulness, just be thinking about where we're at in the order of service. Now, of course, this is practice. We're practicing for when we have an official church. We're practicing for when we have a, um, a pastor. But this is the section of the, of, the, of the worship service that we're in right now, which is the, the consecration phase. Okay, great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever.
And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Good evening, brothers and sisters. Revelation 1, 4 through 7. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes on the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. Amen. Lord, we give thanks and praise for every instance that your faithful gather in your name and ascend to you. We thank you that by your grace and mercy we stand confidently on your never-ending promises, that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you will also be, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. We thank you for our name, Christ Covenant Church, conceived by you in the hearts of your servants. We thank you that it is a product of individual burdens to see a reformed church in Lewis County, and that you have directed the steps of the burdened of the faithful to this place on this night to join in unity of purpose, unity of praise, unity of thanksgiving. We thank you that this name, Christ Covenant Church, is unambiguous, that it denotes a rich heritage, that the name constitutes a sacred seal, a seal that claims ownership by the one true king and also guarantees the contents within that we are your redeemed people. Lord, we thank you that you hear the prayers of your people. We praise you for the progress Mariah is making against the predictions of her doctors. Thanks be to God. We praise you that the heart condition of Leslie Moog has been healed. Thanks be to God. We praise you that Thad and Aaron's niece Jennifer is in remission from her leukemia. Thanks be to God. Lord, we thank you that we don't do this thing called life alone that our precious Savior is always interceding. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you lead us. We thank you that we have one another to lean on and count on. Lord, we thank you for the core group of families that are pilgrims in this church plant. We thank you for the Trinity Church as they water and pray for us. Lord, let us be continually thankful for every single loving thing that you allow in our lives. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and the people of God say, Amen. Amen. All right, I want to begin with reading Psalm 20, verse 5. May we shout for joy over your victory, and in the name of our God, may we set up banners. May Yahweh fulfill all your requests. Lord, we want to pray for all of our needs. The ones we list out tonight are not the only ones. But specifically, we want to pray for the Wallace family. We want to Pray for William's Crohn's disease, for continued healing for Mariah, for the Riddle family, Traveling Mercies, and anyone else who's traveling over the next week. We want to pray for the downfall of Planned Parenthood, Lord. Such a blot on our nation and us as a church. Lord, we want to pray for Jalob's back, that he would get good things back from the doctor, that they would be able to nail down what the problem is and you would provide them with a cure, Lord. Lord, we also want to pray for 10 families 
in our fellowship here that we would, in your divine appointment, be able to, to reach a, a mass, a critical mass, and then move into selection, selection of the, uh, the deacons and elders, that you would guide us in selection of a pastor, and you know what else we haven't said and haven't even thought of. Thank you, Father, for your mercies, for your guidance thus far. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. And I want to end with a prayer by Philip Doddridge, one of the reformers. Gracious Emmanuel, send down your spirit of love for all your followers, that we may no longer glory in the little distinctions of any faction or denomination. Instead, may we show we are Christians standing together under your glorious banner. May we wear your mark of honor on our shoulders like a crown on our heads. And in that way, may the spirit of hatred, disgrace, and persecution vanish like a nauseous mist before the sun. And may it again be said everywhere as it once was, look how those Christians love each other. Amen. Amen. All right, let's stand up for the um, Psalm 124. We're actually singing one psalm this week. Um, we're told to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and psalms come first. So we want to prioritize psalms, and there's 150 psalms that God wrote, 150, 150 um, songs that we know He likes. We don't, have to, we don't have to wonder if He likes these songs, and so it's, we should learn them. So we've been working on this one, uh, Psalm 124. It's from a Genevan Psalter. Uh, from the Genevan Psalter of 1551. So people have been singing this for almost 500 years. Um, and the, there's a really neat story that surrounded this. Uh, this, is, this song has been sung as, um, th there was a one, a one particular um, pastor in particular in uh, Scotland who back in the 1600s was being oppressed by the, uh, by the local magistrates and got put in jail for preaching the gospel. And when they finally let him out, Similar to maybe the way uh, they're finally letting James Coates out, or, or they're on the, in the process of that. I haven't got the, the latest on that. But when they finally let him out, as he walked back into um, Edinburgh, uh, uh, he was joined by hundreds, which ended up becoming thousands of friends and family and parishioners, and they all were singing this song. Hundreds of years ago, they were singing this song, and we're about to sing together. So it's, um, it's Psalm 124. It's the whole thing. And it's a metrical psalm. It's been set to a meter. And so that's why it rhymes. But if you were to open your Bible and go to Psalm 124, you would see pretty much what we're about to sing. So let's, let's, uh, let's sing. Let Israel now say in painfulness that if the Lord had not
consecration would be a sermon and you guys can all count your blessings I'm not giving you a sermon today but yeah, exactly but what we are doing is we are going through the book standing on the promises Luke, can I borrow your book for just just one second it's this book right here standing on the promises it's a biblical um, a handbook of biblical child rearing by Douglas Wilson um, and we're on chapter six right now uh, so I'm just going to give a quick Recap before we get into chapter 6, which is actually a fairly short chapter. The first five chapters thus far, um, uh, the first chapter was a short overview of covenantal child-rearing. Um, and so basically it was the book within the book. He was going to tell us what he was about to tell us. And so uh, in chapter 1, if you just read one chapter, you'll get a pretty good idea of what the book's going to be about in chapter 1. But you really can't stop with chapter 1 because it's all predicated on chapter 2 which is the promises of God to parents. The title of the book is Standing on the Promises. What that means is that as parents, and this is, this is whether we've got, we're actively parenting right now or we have kids that are grown and gone, as parents, we are to stand on the promises that God gives his covenant people. And so chapter two was the promises of God to parents. In that one, there was a, there was a lot of biblical scripture and support, scriptural support, for why um, Christian parents should expect God to work in covenant with their children. We shouldn't, we shouldn't, we shouldn't wonder to ourselves, I wonder if my little kid, or if my little, uh, my little Jimmy or my little, um, you know, Susie's going to grow up to love Jesus. We should expect them to because God promises that. Uh, chapter 3 was the duties of parents before God. So every covenant has things that you need to do to obey. There's uh, attendant blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. That was chapter 3. And then chapter 4 was one of the chapters that I felt may have had some of the most um, importance to us as a community um, because it talked about the, the continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and how there really is one covenant. There's the Old Covenant or the covenant that God made before Christ and then there's the covenant as it's been made new, as it's been renewed in Christ. So chapter 4 was on covenant continuity uh, and how critical it is that we, we wrap our minds around the continuity of the covenant. And then last week we talked about the nature of the child, what is in the hearts of our little ones, and how should we nurture them, how should we covenantally nurture them. So last week had a lot of great, um, a lot of great hope for understanding how your kids think and how they act and how you ought to raise them up in the covenant and how you should nurture them along in the covenant. So this week, we're going to talk about the authority of parents. And this is, this is, this is a very critical one. Um, this is a very critical chapter because it's a, uh, I'm going to start with, um, a, uh, with, a, with a quote from the beginning of the book. And where did I put it? Right here. Um, Doug says, God has invested parents with a very great authority. And this authority must be taken very seriously by parents. Unless parents take this authority seriously, the children certainly will not. 
So the authority of, of, of parents over their children, or the authority of parents that God has put in, in, into us, is not something that we can take or leave. And it's not something that your kids are naturally, they don't come naturally built to respect and honor their parents. It's something that has to be taught. Um, so I need a couple of volunteers to read some scripture. Anybody want to to volunteer? Because this is this is a discussion. Okay, Andrew, um, would you Andrew, will you go to Mark seven, and you're going to be doing five through thirteen, um, and then Charles, you want to do? Did you want to do Exodus? Okay, hang on, you can use my phone. So then we're going to do Exodus twenty one seventeen. I'm going to have Charles read his first. Let's see, Exodus twenty one seventeen. If you're opening in your Bibles. Okay, it's just one verse. Nice and loud, Charles. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. That's it. Ooh. Oh. Okay. Now is everybody awake? <laughs> All right. Is it Mark? Seven, yes, seven? Uh, it is uh, Mark, Mark seven? 7. Yeah, Mark 7, 5 through 13. That's a little okay. bit longer passage. So. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah's, Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them. That's good, that's good. Just to 13 is perfect. Thank you. You didn't want me to keep going? Yeah. You were lulling lulling me. That's it. Got a good reading voice. Uh, No, so that's that's perfect. So um, you can kind of see he actually kind of, he was rebuking them, but he cut it off. He's like, you guys do a lot more than just this, but I'm going to leave it just, just at this one. So Doug brings up the really interesting point. We've got Exodus 21, 17 that, let's, let's face it, a lot of Christians might take a, be a little bit embarrassed by. Um, man, Old Testament called for execution if your kids, if your kids dis- dishonor you. What's, what's that all about? Um, but then he says Jesus doesn't really make it easy because he actually appeals to that part of the Torah and says, yes, that's, that part is true. You guys remember when Jesus talks about, um, you've heard it said, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say that if you're angry with your brother in your heart, that you've already murdered him. Or that you shouldn't commit adultery and, and you should. But if you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you're already committing adultery with her in your heart. This is what he's doing here. He's saying, yes. You, um, you, you, you hold to the law where you, you say that um, children who, um, who curse their parents actually curse them. We're not talking about just some, some vanilla disrespect here. We're talking about actually my heart is set against you, mom or dad. Um, the Pharisees were fine with that part of the law. But then they were turning around and they weren't taking care of their own parents. They were saying, well, mom and dad, I know you guys need my help, but... 
everything that I had for you, it's dedicated to God. It's, look how pious I am. So, so Jesus is doing just the same thing he did with murder, just the same thing he did with adultery. He's doing the same thing with parenting here. He is not saying, yeah, that was a crazy law. Good thing we don't follow that anymore. He was saying, this is a law that you guys all agree with. And let me tell you how you're even right now not obeying it. So let me ask you this question. This is, this is a tough one. Why do we support the death penalty for serial killers um, and all, ilk, all manner of ilk, but not for those who are disrespectful to their parents? Why is it that we're uncomfortable with the idea of people being put to death for being disrespectful to their parents or dishonoring their parents? Totally understandable. No one would blame you for it, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Bless. I think part of it is we're a godless society. I mean, plain and simple. And who's, who's going to be the one who, who manages the standard of capital punishment? I mean, we're godless, we're flawed, <coughs> we're <coughs> sinful, we're capricious, we're all these things. And if we're not following the word of God, then... At what point is a child disrespectful enough where they deserve to be stoned to death or whatever? I, I don't. I don't trust a man to figure that out. Mm. Right. Do you think we have a? Do we think we have a tendency to treat certain crimes as as more heinous than others by our own standards instead of by God's standards? So, so we we look at things we think, well. I, that's not that big of a deal. Love is love. You know, who, who are you to tell me who I can and can't love? And we say, well, we don't say anything. <laughs> we're, not, we're, not the, we're not the standard. This isn't our standard. The standard is the holy God. And so if the holy God, now, before anybody gets too worried, I'm not advocating for putting to death dis disrespecting kids. But the point is, is that it was held so highly. And the relationship, the Holding the honor of mom and dad was held so highly that it could be taken all the way to capital punishment. Not, I doubt it did very often, but it could be. It was like the law existed so that if your heart was dead set against your parents and, and you were literally telling them you know, to, go, to go to the bad place, you were actually telling them that, um, and your heart was... Your, disobedient, you refuse to submit to them, it could get that, it could get that bad. And God not only says, not, God not only sanctions it, but he says it's good. His law is perfect and holy, it's wise, and it, and it, and it changes us in a way that is right. So the quote, that one of the things that Doug said here is he said, Jesus was confronting when he, so when he takes this to the Pharisees and says, you guys are totally fine with this portion of the law, where if your kids get out of hand, you just it's, it's over for them. Or, or if your wife burns the food, you can divorce her. Or, you know, you can hate your brother in your, he in your heart, but, you know, I'm not going to 
I'm not going to go kill him. He's saying, you're not following any of the law. I don't desire your sacrifices. I don't, I don't even desire your outward obedience. I desire a change of the heart. So Jesus was, this is what Doug says. He says, Jesus was confronting the religious leaders of his day because they had set aside the word of God for the sake of traditions of men. Now, that wasn't written in 2021. Even though it sounds like it was written, that we set aside the word of God for the sake of what happens to be fashionable. That's what we do right now. We set aside the word of God because something, the, the, newest, the newest thing that is, the newest perversion of God's law happens to be fashionable. And that is not what we're to do. And it's nothing new. When we do it, we're not being enlightened. We're not doing anything that hasn't been done before. We've been corrupting the word of God since the beginning of time. So let me ask this question. Why do you guys think, this is open to anybody, why does God place such a high value on the, uh, value on the honor of one's parents? And to tie in with that, why would breaking the fifth commandment be grounds for capital punishment? Those kind of go together. Why does he hold the honor of children of their parents in such high esteem? Just as kind of a general, I don't know, general social commentary, we're seeing the inversion right now in our culture of um, elevating the wisdom of children above that of adults. Yeah. We're seeing that a lot. Um, and, and I think that what we're starting to find is that along with postmodernist thought uh, and relativism, we're becoming rapidly more wayward in our moral compass, um, regardless of whether or not there uh, is godly motivation behind it. I think we all can kind of look back and kind of go, hey, whoa, we're seeing a real quick sliding in the last 10 years on, on how things get defined and everything else. And so I think that God puts a... A, uh, an emphasis on the head and the and the parents because he is in fact called father. He's parent. To, he is a parent over us, and so as a result of that, if we are reflecting Christ and we are reflecting and as image bearers of God in our families by looking up to us as you know as children would look up to us, they are and should be. If we are leading pious lives, they should be seeing a reflection of who God is back at them. Mm. So I think that that's in yeah. part why, I think it's at least a piece of why we see that yeah. place as a priority. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. That's good. Anyone else have an idea why God would place such a high value on the honor of one's parents on the fifth commandment? <clears throat> No, no, go ahead, Mom. Isn't the family kind of the foundation of our society? And if we disrespect our parents, that's decaying that foundation. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you can have all different types of peoples, all different types of cultures, all different types of ethnicities and government styles and ways people want to organize things. But at the foundation of it all is if the family's rotten, everything else will be rotten too. And if the family's strong, whatever you come up with, will be at least stronger. Maybe not as strong as it could be, but that's really good. You know, even the code of um, false religions um, have a very strong, and it's kind of a gleaning from, uh, from the principles of what God has set forth, but a, a very strong and severe 
consequences for disrespect mm. of parents. So it's not just like, it's a, it's a weird thing at all. And then the other thing is that the principle there is, it, it isn't just a principle. They, they should be put to death if, the, if certain things are met. Right. But um, if it's just time out or just ignored, um, then they beget children mm -hmm. and it just keeps spiraling down. And so God is basically saying, hey, look, if you want to stay, if you want to stay close to my principles, raise your kids this way. Right. And if you don't, it yep. will start to veer off and go astray. Yep. I mean, it's all kind of obvious. But. No. Parents don't teach their kids to respect them, them, and then those parents don't, and then those kids don't, those kids don't. Pretty soon you've got, like, Portland or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's, it's interesting you say about the other cultures respecting their, their ancestors, or, you know, respecting their, their um, parents and whatnot, because I, I do, respecting their elders is, is something you do see in other cultures. And because the human heart is, I think it was Thomas Goodwin, uh, I could be wrong on who it was, but he, he called the human heart an idol factory. <laughs> And he just said, we'll make an idol out of anything. And so that's where you see all this ancestor worship because people have taken the honoring of their parents to such extreme that they, they don't even stop honoring them after, they, after they're dead, like in a very active, venerating way. So that's really good. Yeah, I think that's, that's awesome. Oh, Alan, you, you were going to add to that. I was going to say that God gave, his, gave authority to parents. Yes. I think that's important. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, there, uh, do you guys know what usurpation is? Usurpation, does anybody know what usurpation is? Yeah. You, you can't steal yeah. somebody's authority. You, you steal somebody's authority, and that's, you know, our hearts are wicked. That's what they want to do all the time. But then the opposite of it, what's the opposite of usurpation? Anybody know? Usurpation? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's abdication. So the opposite of usurpation is abdication, is where you just give up the authority that you, I don't want that authority. And it's like, if you're a father, you don't get a choice. God doesn't say, you know, um, well, you get to choose today if you want to be the authority figure in your children's life. No, you are. How are you going to be that authority figure? Are you going to be a good one? Are you going to be one that's like Jesus? Or are you going to be a wicked one? You're going to have authority. What are you going to use your authority for? Are you going to abdicate? Um, or are you going to let your kids try and usurp? Um, okay, now, one of the objections that uh, Doug brings up is, this is all well and good if you've got good parents, but a lot of us don't have good parents. What do we do when our father and our mother aren't honorable? So we're, we're told to honor our father and mother, but what if they're not honorable? What then? What do we do then? Do we, are we kind of off the hook? Yeah. Show mercy. Show mercy? Okay, good, good. Definitely show mercy. <laughs> Stick with the first one. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well, that's what you're trying to avoid, not have uh, a lineage of parents that end up... Yes. In, in, but, yeah. But yeah, there's, there's a little room for mercy. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the, in the cycle of families... Um, some of us have been have been blessed with great covenant heritage. We've got, as all the cool kids say, we've got great covenant privilege, and we should think of our privilege with thankfulness. Some of us don't, though, and so we're in the position of cycle breaking. the The sin of our fathers and their fathers and the fathers before them, it has to stop with us. 
And so, so we say, okay, Jesus has redeemed me. For the foundations of the world, he had called me to himself, and now I'm going to, to worship him in the beauty of holiness. And my dad or my mom doesn't feel the same way. And, and in fact, they're a failure as a parent. They're ungodly. Do, does the fifth commandment still apply? Do you still have to honor your father and mother? What do we think? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Kind of a Sunday school answer there. Yes, you still do. But it's important to, to remember. He gives a really, I, I've never, I, I've read this book before and I didn't remember this at all. Had you guys ever heard of the, the um, Miriam's, the dishonor that Miriam experienced? Um, so, so basically, um, actually, I've, I forget why Mir, uh, uh, Moses is going to God and saying, hey, you know, don't hold this sin against Miriam. And God makes the case that had just her father spit in her face, she would have only been dishonored for seven days. And so let's use this basically as the, the punishment. And Doug takes that, that kind of a little bit of a side thing and says, in that culture, the, if the dad who was, be, who was doing something wrong spits in his daughter's face, he's being dishonorable, right? But who, end, who ends up being the one that's dishonored because of that? It's the daughter. The daughter is the one that ends up getting, or, or the son, um, because the, the, the honor of parents was held in such high regard that, um, uh, that in that particular case, even if the father does something as, as to like be provoked, maybe, maybe he was provoked, still wrong, but maybe he was provoked into to doing that, but she's the one that ends up bearing that dishonor. Um, so I thought that was, I thought that was really, it was really interesting. And, and Doug goes on to say, uh, going to Ephesians 6, 1, he says, Ephesians 6 does not say we're off the hook in honoring our parents if they are ungodly, failures, or dishonorable. We're not off the hook with that. Um, it makes it harder, and maybe we can, we can trust in the fact that we'll have a bigger, a bigger reward in heaven for honoring someone who was dishonorable. But if God commands us to do it, then we must do it. Um, here's a question for you. Um, could because this is a point that Doug is making in the, in the in the book, he's saying that some of our parenting problems, or maybe many of our parenting problems that we might be experiencing right now, could have a direct correlation, or at least could be directly traced back to how we've been disrespectful and dishonoring toward our own parents. So think think of three generations. You've got generation um, one, two, and three, and generation one and two never got along very well. Um, the, 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 the son never really respected his dad. The daughter never really respected her mom. And then, and then generation two starts having generation three. And they're struggling. And, they're, and, the, and the reason why, Doug is saying, or at least part of the reason why, is because they don't have this relationship. They're not doing what scripture calls them to do. And so their own children, grandchildren of generation one, aren't going to do that either. And so do we think that that's true? Do we think that at least could be possible? Or do we think that... That's, that's got good insight to it, or do we feel, feel like that's, uh, that, might not be, that might be less true than, than he makes the case for? I think, it could be, I think it could be true, but I don't know that it's necessarily true all the time. Right. There's always probably exceptions to the rule, but uh, more than likely, the, those broken relationships between you know, kids and parents just have trickle-down effects, mm. you know, and whatever it is, maybe certain ways that you're raising your own kids then later on, certain habits, certain tendencies, certain things that you have in the back of your mind yeah. from that previous relationship, there's this disconnect and that yeah. tends to breed 
foster some, some of the same problems that maybe were, yeah. occur were occurring in the previous relationship. So yeah, I, did, I was reading uh, or listening to uh, uh, someone speak about you know that that parent relationship, and oftentimes, even if you have even if you have parents that are that are in some sense you know either non-Christian, pagan, you know disrespectful or you know just whatever you want to you want to call that is that we're still called to honor them. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean that you have to respect them in all yeah. degrees. And that, that clarification between honoring and respecting I thought was very helpful because sometimes you know, people have parents that you, you, they just aren't respectful. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, well, you know, even if you have kids and you don't want, you don't want to damage that relationship, you can still, well, we're still going to honor them by doing certain things, but we don't, need, we don't have to respect their language if they have really yeah. harsh language or whatever okay. it might be. So. Yeah. Those types of things. Yeah, that's good. Luke. To piggyback on what Luke was saying there, I think that um, my many years ago I was a teacher, and I think that there's just sort of anecdotally this experience that most teachers have, where they're working with a kiddo, and then they do the parent-teacher conference, and they go, "Aha!" <laughs> um, and so I think that I think that at least anecdotally, it's not always. It wasn't always true. I mean, there was you know. I can definitely think of some instances where, like, boy, these parents are clearly working hard to try and work through some challenging stuff. But there is definitely the the either the respect factor or certain behaviors that were manifesting themselves in the classroom were very closely linked to the way that the parents were in engaging, even in a short parent-teacher conference yeah. in public school. So yeah, it's like the good news is you're. Your kids are going to turn out just like you, and the bad news is your kids are going to turn out just like you. <laughs> yes? There's, there's a, how do you mean to respect and honor mm. the parent? And there's also, you know, God says you have to leave your mother and father yep. to follow me. And so you don't want an influence on your children mm. that could be harmful from the grandparent. And yeah. so there's... There's many things to yeah. deal with Absolutely. in order to make the break, in order to start on good seed. Yeah. And yet, there still can be respect. You don't need to be bad-mouthing the parents. Exactly. Is, so is that what you mean? Oh, absolutely. And, and Doug actually even, he actually even makes the point that his, one of the ideas, one of the practical ideas he has is if you're in the midst of parenting little ones, and you're struggling with it, and you don't have, and you have the kind of relationship with your parents that you're currently having with your own kids. That what you need to probably do is write a restitution letter to your parents, make it right with them, and if you make it right and start treating them the way you know your kids are supposed to treat you, then then that's kind of where the healing can start to begin. Because if you're, you know, God opposes the proud, He, he opposes. Uh, hypocrites, you know, he opposes people who say one thing and do another. And so if we're trying to raise our kids to honor their mother and father, because we know that's what God wants them to do, and we're not doing it, it they're going to see that. And, and even if they don't see it, even if they, if they somehow miss it, you'll give it away. You, you all, we always give it away. We can't, we're, we're terrible, we really are terrible at, at hiding this kind of sin. Les, go ahead. Um. Joe and my relationship with my father was abysmal. Mm. He, he was an abusive man and all that. Yeah. And I remember, I, I know the effect it had on me. 
and I like there's a statement Doug makes in there that what does it say? Um, parental parental failure is no defense. Hmm. Is no defense for my actions and my kind of concomitant hostility toward my father. Here's the thing. When I was working, I, I think I share with you, working with all these addicts that I've worked with, I don't know any any man that really had a good relationship with his dad. Almost invariably, all of them had this just fractured, dysfunctional, just total off the hook relationship. And when I would when I would meet meet them for the first time, we we would begin to talk about these types of things, and the hostility that was directed at at dad, let's say. It's pretty amazing that in the, in the case of when a man became born again, when God saves him, when he takes him out of the miry clay and he sets him on that rock and yeah. that foundation, how all of a sudden the tone begins to change over time that no longer is he this guy. He, You know what? He did the best he can mm. or he did the best he could. I know in my own life that became kind of my yeah. attitude and opinion as well. You know, my dad did the best he could. And it wasn't, well, he was this and he was this and this, he was this. That, that's how God, that's how mm. Jesus affects people. You know, it goes back to mercy. Yeah. It goes back to, you know, turning the other cheek and it, it goes back to forgiveness and all these things. doesn't mean you need to trust him again, like Luke was saying, but you, yeah. forgiveness is not... It's not a suggestion. But see, for me and my dad, I couldn't forgive him. I couldn't. I tried. I, Kay will tell you, for years and years, I just hated lip service. My dad died very young. He's not here. Or there's nothing to forgive. Boy, I tell you, the, the Holy Spirit showed me a whole different thing. And then when, when the forgiveness happened, by and only by divine intervention, it was the, one of the most liberating things I've ever experienced. Wow. Is really good. So, you know, my issues are my issues. It, it would be real, you know, Oprah and Phil say I can blame my own man. <laughs> They'll tell me I can do that. But you know what? They can't be more wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But I, what, the choices I made belong to me. Mm. And it wasn't my daddy's fault. Yeah. You know, so anyway. Thanks for sharing that, Les. I think it would be easy for um, individuals who have fractured relationships with their dads to use it as a leverage of justification for their own sin. Mm. I think that's what Doug hits on in this, is that it becomes uh, it becomes a hall pass, basically, mm -hmm. where no hall pass ever actually existed. Yeah. Right? And so I think that that's something that... Um, uh, it takes some maturity in your walk with Christ to come to an understanding that my sin is my own and my circumstances don't justify my sin. Hmm. So that's something that uh, I know for me took, I think that took a while to yeah. kind of figure it out. It could be used, uh, that, that bad relationship could be used as leverage for behavior that was unglorifying to God and not good for me and it's just yeah I, could, I can see that and I can see how if God doesn't intervene and doesn't intercept with the Holy Spirit 
how you get generational sin. Yeah. Right? So the sins are, you know, the sins of the Father are passed on to each generation unless there's mercy and grace that intercedes on your behalf. It it becomes so easy to just pin your problems on that. And I think that that's why when as we've started to see this move away from um, where where government where government is replacing dad, and we're encouraging uh, we're encouraging brokenness in relationship. Mm-hmm. How thirteen year olds without dads are going? Well, this is so easy to just go down this path. This seems because there's a there's a hopeless there's a hopelessness to it. And so I think that yeah, I think there's a there's a wake up call to Christian men that yeah. Uh, you know, husband, husband first, yes, but father. I mean, this is a this is a high this is a very high calling yeah. that you need to take with the utmost seriousness. Yes, um, because then you have. I think a lot. I think much of our much of our uh, problems in our society are yeah. based on on that. Right. You know. <clears throat> Uh, At the end of the chapter, Doug, to tie in with what you're saying, Andrews, at the end of the chapter he says, uh, the Christian parent is God's appointed representative to the child to speak and apply God's word. We are to address our children in this way, clearly stating what we expect of them and showing them how this expectation of ours is God's expectation for them. So the, the big thing I think we need to end with here is that the authority of parents is not a power trip for dad or mom. This is not at all, and, and it's, it's the kind of, it's the kind of um, authority that Jesus, um, he, he said, I and my Father are one, and yet he clearly listened to the voice of his Father. He says, I have, to, it's, it's, I have to do the will of my Father who sent me. And so there was an authority structure there. We don't need to get into the Athanasian Creed because we're not talking modalism here. We're not saying that there was three, three actual gods. There's just one God. But at the same time, in the beauty of that trinity, there was submission, there was authority, and as parents, there is nothing, there's almost nothing more critical than, than for us to pass on God's standard to our kids and let them know, this isn't my idea. What, when you are obeying me, you're not obeying me, you're obeying God. When you disobey me, you're not disobeying me, you're disobeying God. If, um, can somebody look up if, uh, Psalm 51? And then all we need is verse 4. If somebody wants to take Psalm 51, verse 4, um, it's, it really is for parents, especially for parents whose kids are struggling with sin. I don't know if there's any parents here who have kids that ever sin. But, um, but if, your kids, yeah, if your kids struggle with sin, Psalm 51, 4 is a really good one to remind them of. Um, Luke, nice and loud. Nice and loud so we all can hear it. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Okay, now this is David confessing his sin of adultery and murder. And yet he says against you, and you only have I sinned. And, and that's not that there wasn't casualties along the way, but it's that ultimately when we sin, we're sinning against God. And so when we discipline our children, when we take our children we say, why is daddy spanking you? It's not because I'm mad at you. 
It's not because I came up with some capricious rule that you're just going to have to endure. It's because God put me in charge, and if you don't obey me, you're disobeying God. That's why the proverb says, you know, if you beat your, your son with a rod, you will save his soul from hell. Because if he goes down that path like you were talking about, Andrew, there's one end for all people who go down that path. And as parents, the authority that we've been given is to keep them from that. Now, of course, the, the Holy Spirit is the one that actually does the, the work, but we're his instruments. We're his instruments to keep our, our children from going down that path. So then let's look at the families. So let's say you got a room full of families. Okay. Okay, I got it. <laughs> I can imagine that. And, and things are just really on course. Everybody's committed to these principles and, yeah. and doing, uh, you know, and working at it hard and, and good approach. Then, um, so that's a nice, it's kind of a clean slate, so to speak, but um, then you have difference of opinion between the husband and wife. Oh, no, 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 you can't do that. That's too harsh. Don't do that. Or do this or it's, you know, and kids are extremely crafty. You know, I mean, they, they know how to... Triangulate. Yeah, and stuff like that. So, so even when you're out there and, and you are on your knees and you're asking for help and, and mm -hmm. uh, from God, uh, it's a tough, tough job, you know. And without God, of course, you mm -hmm. can see how it's, uh, it's yeah. just, you know... I mean, there's some nice families out there that are not godly, but they've obviously employed some godly principles, mm. even though they aren't Christians. And like I said, there's good kids out there because of good parents. Yeah. Right. And, and it's no accident that one of the premier focuses of the enemy is to attack a family. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, my goodness, yep. this is so blatant yeah. and it's so effective as yep. well. Yep, uh, the enemy always has had the crosshairs of the family in his in his uh, his, in his sights. sights. Yeah, didn't quite get that. <laughs> <laughs> Any other thoughts on the chapter before we before we close up? Yeah. Correction 
to bring you in line with scripture. Mm. And so I think a lot of times what happens is I think we spank to get a behavior outcome. We hit to get a behavior outcome, not a heart outcome. Mm. And so the research is probably correct. <laughs> if you are hitting your kid or you're spanking your kid because you're furious with them because they're not behaving the way you think they should be behaving, that's going to impose some psychological damage on them. If you are using the rod, so to speak, or spanking to bring somebody in line with what God's will is for them, and it is absent anger, but it is in fact actually discipline in love, I think that is totally different. But I think we screw up on that so much. I will be the first to own that. Yeah. I, yeah. I would kind of wonder too, you know, those studies, my hunch is they're not studying redeemed families either. Yeah. You know, yeah. probably studying secular families with secular responses, corporal punishment, and then not following up with the rest of what the scripture says to do. You know, they just kind of, well, give them a good hit and sent them in the room, you know, and that's, mm. that's kind of the end of it, you know, instead of right. the totality of everything the scripture instructs parents to do. Um, yeah. Forgiveness, and, right? Yeah, and then I would also and restitution, right? And I would wonder too, like, were they studying divorced families? Were they studying, you know, uh, what does the rest of the uh, household structure look like? Because, mm. you know, you could have divorced families, which is another huge topic too. You know, when families split up and everything, which yeah. is the vast majority yes. of families in America now. Mm. You know, they could be studying secular ungodly families that have been divorced but are still employing corporal punishment. And so at the end of the day, the kids just feel totally neglected. They see their families split up and then they're getting hit on top of it. And they're like, well, what's going on, you know? Right. And so there's no, you know, so that would be kind of my thought. I think there's probably some sort of a void there or gap as far as, yeah. How are they administering? Well, absolutely, and then you've got the scientific method, which long ago, that horse has left the barn in terms of anything anything um, as it relates to um, unbiased research. You know, it used to be that theology was the queen of sciences, and that every good scientist was also a theologian, because science has to come under the authority of Christ. That's, that's the first rule. And then in the beginning of the 20th century, we had the modernist movement who said, hey, if we can't prove it through the scientific method, it can't be true. And we've had all kinds of problems ever since then. But the, but the fact is, is that most of our scientific studies aren't really based in the scientific method. They're based in a scientism or a belief in science. So if you've ever seen Nacho Libre, you know, Escalito, I don't even believe in science. And, you know, it's kind of like that. that that's, that's, the, that's the joke. It's like, you know. Uh, <laughs> Oh. That's pretty good. Yeah, can you do that voice again? Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's worried why he's been baptized. He's like, I only believe in science. <laughs> and, that's, and that's not to, dis to discount the idea of scientific studies that are saying something. They're like, what's our answer to that? I think one of our answers is happy kids. You know, like, hey, you know, we, we spank our kids a lot, and our spankings make them happier. Because they know dad doesn't spank the neighbor kids because he doesn't love the neighbor kids like he loves, like he loves me. The, the spanking is not fun, but Hebrews 12 tells us no discipline is, is pleasant at the time, but it, it results in something, and it shows that you have a status as a son. And how many kids you know, wish they had a dad to spank them? 
you know, not, not to beat them, but wish they had a dad who loved them enough to do that kind of inconvenient discipline. That, the whole world's telling them not to do. Um, I don't know if that's helpful at all, Leanna, but uh, um, as, we, uh, as we kind of close things up here, and, and Luke's, Luke will close this up, but um, we have a slight change to our order of service that we from, from last week. And, and as I said last week, our order of service, our order of service is going to change somewhat as we, as we figure things out. But because we're not officially a mission church yet, um, we don't, we're not doing communion at this point. Um, and so you see under that communion, God feeds us. Uh, and then in small print, it says, we wait on the Lord's providence. I thought it might be good to, to, to put a hymn in here and, and to have a time of prayer where we pray for more families to join us. Because we've got a, we've got a goal of 10 families before we become a, a live mission church. And, and that was, it's not, a, it's not set in stone type thing, but it was, this was the wise counsel that we were given by Dave Hatcher and Trinity Church that are, that they're the ones planting us. And so we've been praying for 10 families. And so I thought what we could do is, um, you guys actually all know this song, even if you don't recognize it, because it's the same tune. It's how sweet and awful is the place. It's the same tune to Psalm 23 that we've been singing. Um, and let me just take a quick, uh, quick note before I pray. That word awful doesn't mean bad. It means full of awe. It's, it's awful in the, old, in the old sense. Sometimes you'll see this, this hymn rewritten, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. But awful is a better term because we're talk, this is actually a communion hymn. Um, and, and you'll see this. In, in, the, in the last line is the one that um, I'm excited to sing with you. And it says, We long to see thy churches full, that all the chosen race... May with one voice in heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. So um, will you pray with me as we pray for this church to, um, that, God would, uh, that God would bring more to our midst? Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for Christ's Covenant Church and for our desire to become a mission church and our desire to have ten founding member families. We pray, Father, that you would bring them to us. And if people have, are being um, led by the Spirit to join us, I pray, Father, that they would follow up on that calling by the Spirit. But it's in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, um, so this is how sweet and awful is the place. And if you remember Psalm 23, it's the exact same tune. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors while
church and we can experience communion together and after that communion we will have the uh, commission here as God sends us out to do his will in and amongst amongst the world so please stand as I commission you now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for all time and now and forever. Amen. All right, let's sing the doxology together. Then. <coughs> Praise God from whom all blessings flow. 